If you're looking for a clean, sober, professional, academic, well-researched, historically accurate, generally accurate, serious podcast on Southern folklore, ghosts, bizarre events, and unique people, this podcast is not for you. However, if you've decided you can live with that, then join us for The Strange South. Hi, Patrice. I did that right when you're taking a bill swig. This is like, this is a delicious hurricane that I'm drinking right now. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Courtney. Courtney. We're celebrating Mardi Gras. We have our mask on Mm -hmm. and our beads on and hurricanes. And Creepolino the doll. Yes, I brought the dolls down. Oh, 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 there's plastic on her. Yeah, she's going to be pissed off at you for putting trash on her. I can't touch her. I'm (laughs) like, I really, I took her mask off. Like when right. I got here, I sat down on the couch and she had a mask on. And Patrice was like, "This is your mask." And I was like, "Oh yay! <laughs> I don't know that I can take this from her." <laughs> it's like I feel like I have to apologize first. No, we, and we were. Well, she doesn't have a name, and we were trying to figure out what to name her. What is? Which was I, it? Creepolina. I, hashed, I, hashed I can't remember. Creepolina. I think after yeah. you said that, I was like, "That's a good enough name." Creepolina mm-hmm. the doll. We'll find out if she appreciates it. Hopefully, yes. hopefully your house is safe from. <laughs> well, she is in the Haint Blue room, mm-hmm. so I feel pretty safe having her down here. Actually, I mean, she should probably just stay here. Probably. That would probably be the safest. <clears throat> so this is a very large hurricane. I'm already halfway through. Yeah, I think I've gone a little too far already. It is really strong and really delicious. <laughs> And it reminds me of the time and that I was going to tell you. And actually, it sounds a lot worse than it really was when I got kicked out of Pat O'Brien's. <laughs> actually, <laughs> more specifically, the time that I got kicked out of the Pat O'Brien's piano bar. So if you've never been to Pat O'Brien's, it's a famous place in New Orleans where you go drinking and their piano bars. People line up um, to get a seat in the piano bar. And the thing is, when you go into the piano bar, you have to constantly buy drinks from them. So and usually, of course, if you're at Pat O'Brien's, they're famous for their New Orleans hurricanes. Right. And hurricanes is like passion fruit and cherries and um, juice and just a ton of rum. There's so much rum. And yeah, grenadine and liquor and they're beautiful and they come in these you know cool really big glasses but the thing about it is if you stop buying the drinks you have to leave the piano bar so it's kind of like it's a perfect situation for them Mm -hmm. because they can constantly sell liquor (laughs) and then you know the more you drink you know the more that you sing and you get looser and and the piano bar so usually have like dueling pianos up two people on the pianos and they play absolutely everything so you're drinking and they're playing songs that you can sing to and everybody's singing and it's great fun it's like one of my favorite things Mm -hmm. ever so many moons ago um i think i was probably like 25 uh i went there for a conference with my boss and one of my co-workers 
And um, my boss was a couple of years older than me. So we're all very young. And then my coworker, he was very young. He was like, maybe just turned 21, 22. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, we decided to go out the night before the conference and we went to the piano bar because they were a lot of fun. So a lot of times, and they were both guys. So a lot of times when you get guys, there's, you know, sometimes they're fuddy duddies and they don't want to go out and do anything like that. But mm-hmm. they totally were all into the piano bar and drinking and stuff. And I was like, yes. So we did that. We ordered our hurricanes. We were singing. They were singing. It was fantastic. I had so much fun. And of course, you have to keep drinking. Well, uh, hurricanes are so sweet and Mm -hmm. they go down very easily. And so, you know, before you know it, you know, you don't want to leave the piano bar. So you got to keep drinking. So I was about like starting my third hurricane. And I am not a drinker to begin with. So I did not have like that built up level. Um, so after one, I was lit. After two, I was like really like just sloppy drunk, right? <laughs> but having the best time ever. And as were in my, you know, cohorts there were keeping up with me and we were just all drinking. We all ordered our third one and we'd been Jeez. there, you know, maybe an hour or so. Oh my I'm, God, you drank that much in an hour? Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you, it goes down fast and you I don't. Know. Right. Well, I'm I'm speedy. I am. I'll admit. Right. And you don't, I mean, if you're singing and you're drinking, I mean, you don't really, you want that feeling and and that happiness going on because it's like, it's hitting all the things. It's like the, you got the buzz and then singing brings out the endorphins, you know, the happy little chemicals. And so it's just such a great time. But about the third hurricane, we just ordered, we're singing (laughs) and I'm like sitting there and I'm looking at my companions (laughs) and we're all like, you know, da-da. And the a uh, little guy that was with us, the the younger um, uh, co-worker, like, leans over and pukes. Oh, my God. Underneath no. the table. And this is back up. stinging at the end. <laughs> Let me tell you, Nobody they do not miss a thing Mm-mm. at the piano bar. As soon as he started puking, there was these huge bouncer dudes. Oh, my and God. And I just remember seeing, like, these huge rectangle shapes that were like almost to the ceiling just <laughs> converge on us as soon as he started puking and I was like holy shit we're about to die <laughs> and so we go running out to the street I totally well actually we I go running out to the street I totally leave all of them behind um because they were basically removing us from Patabrine's, yeah. like our table. <laughs> oh my god! But I got so sick. I was that was like the worst ever. I mean, I just it was just bad. Like <laughs> I was borderline alcohol poisoning that night. It oh was my so god. bad. <laughs> And the next morning, to make it worse, we had our conference like 8 o'clock in the morning, Mm. right? So, I didn't sleep because I pretty much spent all night, like, puking my guts up. And the next morning, I felt so horrible. And my boss at the time, who was a big guy, was so happy-go-lucky. And he wanted to eat something before we went. So, we, we go into this place and he orders, like, the biggest, greasiest sausage egg breakfast combination and just smelling it just really wanted me I just really just it was horrible I remember just just hating him at that time (laughs) but um yeah so that's my getting kicked out of Pato's story (laughs) 
So, surefire way to get kicked out of pedos is to start puking. Yeah. <laughs> I can still see. I can still see those bodyguards just enclosing on us. I mean, it was just like, it's like you know, why are the walls coming closer? Exactly. That's what it felt like. The walls were going to, I was like, oh my God. And I just ran. I, just, I don't even remember how I got out of there. I just remember standing up and just running. And the next thing, I was on the street. And I think my boss did the same thing because I looked and I saw him and, you know, we were like, hey, where's the other guy? <laughs> we just left him. It was like everyone for themselves. Poor <laughs> kid. Oh, but Piano Bar, totally recommend it. Pace yourself. Pace yourself. Pace yourself so that you can sit and enjoy it. But that's like the most fun ever. It's like, what's more fun? First of all, sitting down because you don't have to stand totally on board with that drinking and then singing songs at the top of your lungs and nobody else cares because they're singing songs at the top of their lungs it's like it's no judgment so. it's better than karaoke like, it is so much better yeah, than karaoke yeah, yeah it totally. is like yeah it is like crowdsourced karaoke it is so good <laughs> so good <laughs> I remember going there once, because I've been a couple of times, and the governor of Texas was there, and it was uh, the woman, Kay something, I mean, this is like yeah, or something or whatever. It was like the first woman of Texas to be the governor, and she was actually at the bar, and so she had all of her, you know, Secret Service with her, and we were all singing, it was great. Oh, great you don't have, like, PTSD with all the, like, Secret Service men standing around, you're like, are <laughs> well, you going to get time, me? I was, like, behaving myself, so, you know, <laughs> pacing myself. It was good. Uh, all right, funny. so, yeah, so if you haven't guessed already, we are celebrating Mardi Gras, and we are having New Orleans-themed stories today. Yes, we are. And you have to go first. Oh, shit, I do, <laughs> Yep. I went first last week. Okay. I just did a lot of talking, so. I actually changed my mind on my story, like, midweek, so. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Now I have, like, four things I'd love to talk about about New Orleans, but I'm only talking about one. Right. So, I was talking about New Orleans because I've been reading this book. Actually, I've been doing a lot of, kind of, research on New Orleans, and... You know, learning why, like like Savannah, why New Orleans is so haunted, you know, just simply because of the history of, like, with Native Americans and, you know, being one of the first big ports before, like, America was America kind of thing. And then mm-hmm. all the yellow fever. Yellow fever is such a huge thing. Um, all the diseases and just all the... You know, at one point they were, what was I telling, was I telling y'all or, or did I tell, I can't remember. Mine's totally gone. Um, <laughs> but it drink. was like, it was, yeah, it's like the French were trying to get people to come over to live in New Orleans and nobody would do it. And they're like, we'll give you free land and there, nobody would do it. And so <laughs> they said, well, um, let's get prisoners to come over there. And, oh, the prison, yes. and they're like, we will let you be free people over there. If you'll, you know, go across and live in New Orleans and the prisoners was like, no way. <laughs> so, you know, nobody wanted to live there before it was like um, really built up and colonized and everything. Well, I mean, it was like all bayou, right? But it was Wasn't all, it? yeah, it was swampland, which, you know, hence the yellow fever and pirates and y- your chance of living was very slim. Mm-hmm. It was a really rough terrain. Okay. So, talking about this, my story takes place in 1787. Okay. 
which is the same year that the Constitution was signed and the U.S. government was formed. That's why that sounds familiar. Right, right. So, my story is about Delphine LaLaurie. I knew you were doing that. I knew it. I knew it. No, I didn't do it. We have a we have a background. We have we have a back check that right. we we perform. We I text my check. story to Patrice's husband whenever I find my story, and then he sits there confused for a couple of hours, and then he tells Patrice what I'm talking about. And she so we use we use him as our intermediary, so right. we never can duplicate. Right. Yes. So yeah, we both text my husband, and he's like he lets us know if we're doing the same thing because we don't want to tell each other. I knew you were doing. I knew uh, you were doing her. I, I am not going to pretend like I didn't have like a <laughs> well, Wikipedia said, page pulled up. It's like one of the up. biggest stories. Oh my right? gosh! And it's an awesome story. So hit it. Yeah, it's, I hope it's an amazing it story. All right. So Delphine Lalaurie. So Marie Delphine McCarty was born in New Orleans on March nineteenth, seventeen eighty-seven, and this was like um, when the Constitution was signed was in September. So just like a few months before the Constitution was signed. She was one of five children. Her father was Louis Bartholomew de McCarty. I'm going to fuck up these names, y'all. I, yeah, I mean, I think we need to have just a general New Orleans apology yeah, because apology, I'm going to do like the same. French. I can't even pronounce street names. So. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. Anyway, so originally her dad was the Chevalier de McCarty, whose father, Bartholomew de McCarty, bought I the family. I that you're going through this. I know, right? And you're just like, fuck, just get, get on with it. Okay. Um, so anyway, uh, so the generation, the reason I bring him up, because they came into Ireland. So his, her grandfather basically brought them to New Orleans from Ireland. So they'd been there since 1730. Um, and they were there during the French colonial period. And her mother was Marie-Jeanne Lerbel, um, and was also known as the Widow Lecomte, as her marriage to uh, Louis B. was her second. <laughs> Which is really interesting. After reading all of this, they married a lot so it's like you know that the mortality rate was really low because people died mm. easily and there was like it wasn't so much from divorce it's like your husband died so you remarried and yeah. so a lot of these women be you know they'll be married three or four five times you mm-hmm. know because their husbands died for whatever reason for a billion reasons for that's a why nobody wanted to move reason, to nobody <laughs> wanted to move to New Orleans during this time right <clears throat> But um, both of these families were very prominent, and they lived in the town's European Creole community. So Creole at this time meant um, basically native-born. So people who were Creole were the native-born European, French, and Spanish people. So if if you were born... Oops, sorry, I didn't mean to hit that. If you were born, you know... European and came over, you're considered Creole. All right, so her uncle was the governor of the Spanish American provinces of Louisiana and Florida, and her cousin was mayor of New Orleans. So she was pretty much, she had clout. She had clout. She was like up there um, with the upper echelon. Very bougie, right? Ugh, I'm already, I'm sorry, I'm like already thinking ahead. <laughs> yes, I know. Right? All right, go ahead. Okay, so let's carry on with her life. Her first marriage, she was married at the age of 13 to a high-ranking Spanish royal officer. Ooh. And, yes, 
and I don't know if something happened to them or happened to him where he died. I didn't really see where he just like died, whatever happened to him. But something happened to him to where that she had a second marriage eight years later when she was 21 to Jean Blanc, Blanky Blank, whatever, a French name. Um, Enter French name here. Enter French name here, right? Um, a prominent banker, merchant, lawyer, legislator. And they had four children. And then eight years later, he died. Um, then her third marriage, when she was 38, uh, was to a physician named Leonard Louis Nicholas LaLaurie, who was much younger than she was. So she already has like four children, but another marriage, married twice. She's pushing 40, um, and she marries this younger guy. And from what I can tell from readings, it's like they didn't really have much to do with each other. Um, mm. There wasn't. And it was more like totally a marriage of convenience. Like, yeah. You know, she obviously had clout and was still like had money and everything. And he was a physician and younger. So it didn't really go much into about him from what I've read. Mm-hmm. Of course, this is very much surface reading. I did not really delve <laughs> much into his path. But I'm kind of curious because of future events, which I'm just to tell you about. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in 1831, she bought a property at 1140 Rural Street, which she managed in her own name with little involvement from her husband. In 1832, she had a two-story mansion built there, complete with attached slaves' quarters. She lived there with her third husband, the LaLaurie, and her two daughters. Um, and I don't know if there were two daughters from him or two daughters from the past marriage. Mm. Anyway, doesn't really matter. And so she maintained, she continued to maintain a central position in New Orleans society. And I saw a picture of her. She's pretty homely looking. Uh, yeah, I mean, she's, she's like plain. very like plain, quaint mm-hmm. looking um, person to be so high society, right? So the Lalories maintained several slaves in the slave quarters uh, attached to their mansion. And account of Delphine Lalories' treatment of her slaves between 1831 and 1834 mixed. So again, a lot of speculation, a lot of gossip from, you know, people in her circles and then also from the people who weren't in her circles. Mm-hmm. So the recounting of the tales um, by the New Orleans residents during her uh, 18th, oh, there's a recounting of a tale. So this woman came along and after all the shit hit the fan, she like investigated and like looked into what actually had happened. And this is kind of her retelling of this, this information that I'm about to talk about. And I don't know what her name is because I took it out because it was a French name that I couldn't pronounce. So I'm like, (laughs) you are gone. Not important. Okay. So it said that she observed, like it was observed that her slaves were singularly haggard and wretched. And however, in public appearance, the, you know, LaLaurie talking about the woman, Mrs. LaLaurie was seen to be generally polite towards, you know, black people and other servants and solicitous of her own slaves health, you know, so it, in all appearances, when she went out in the public, she seemed to be very concerned about slaves' health and other people's slaves and very cordial and whatnot. But 
<laughs> and it also said that records showed that LaLaurie freed two of her slaves um, during this time. So why hmm. she freed them, it, it's, you know, I don't know if she's keeping appearances, keeping up appearances, it's, you know. It's what the genteel do. Yeah, or, you know, or, or what's going on in order to hide other, you know, nefarious deeds. So, um, let's say she freed two slaves, blah, blah, blah. However, rumors of her mistreatment of her slaves were sufficiently widespread that a local lawyer was dispatched to Royal Street to remind LaLaurie of the laws for upkeeping of slaves. Oh, no, that's interesting. Yeah. So there was like a standard. So obviously you could have slaves bought and sold people, which is hideous and horrendous of itself. Mm. But there was a law saying that you had to maintain your slaves. You couldn't be a total bastard. Hmm. Um, you couldn't be, you know, sadistic towards your slaves. And <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> And, okay. During the visit, the lawyer found no evidence or wrongdoing of mistreatment of the slaves by LaLaurie. So, in other tales of LaLaurie's cruelty, um, so everybody's gossiping at the time. So, you know, she's keeping up appearances, but there's gossiping going around about how she tra- she treated her slaves. And, you know, who knows who knows what's the truth, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so other tales of LaLaurie's cruelty were um, in New Orleans residents. Hold on. Lost my place. <laughs> I did La that. Lori. So one of her neighbors saw Lori's slaves, a 12-year-old. So this is one of the folklores going on. She saw a 12-year-old girl. Um, one of the neighbors saw a 12-year-old girl being chased by Lori with a, uh, a whip. Ooh. Um, and being, you know, yelling at her and chasing her up to the top of the roof where the little girl jumped off and <gasps> fell to her death. Oh, no. And, um, so they said that, you know, she jumped off to avoid being punished by a whip wielding, uh, Delphine LaLaurie. And the reason was, is that the girl was brushing Delphine's hair when she hit a snag and it caused Delphine to grab the whip and chase her. So she caused, you know, her master pain or whatever and so she was going to suffer the whip and i was reading a book and i'll put this in the show notes like so there's a book on new orleans hauntings and this story obviously came up because this is a really she's very um famous in new orleans and they said that when Lalori went out, when Delphine went out, she was often seen with wearing her whip, like an accessory kind of thing. Oh. So she was often seen with her whip. And obviously this is what she punished her slaves with when they didn't do what she wanted or, you know, acted bad or whatever. Okay. So the girl jumped off and da, da, da. Let's see. I lost my place. Chased her. The body was subsequently buried on the mansion grounds. Um, and according to this person who who's been researching this, and this is like you know a few years after all this, the big stuff happened. Um, uh, the Lalorians were found guilty of illegal cruelty and forced to um, 
forfeit non-slaves after the little girl fell. But of course, because she had clout, cousins, the mayor, Mm -hmm. uncles, the governor, uh, the non-slaves were brought back to the Lorries through an intermediate relative. Oh my God. So, you know, so the little girl died. There was a little bit of an uproar. Her slaves were taken away from her. And then um, she went through her cousin or her uncle and got the slaves back. And so they ended up being back in her mansion. Right. So during this time... Lori kept a cook and it was rumored that her cook was chained to the kitchen stove and it was an older woman and that Lori would beat her daughters when they attempted when the cook attempted to feed the other slaves oh so in 1834 so it would beat the cook's daughters if the cook tried to feed other people besides like the family so she chained the cook to the stove and this woman's like in her 70s 60s or 70s god like an older woman and you know she's basically trying to keep her in a place and not letting her help the other slaves which she had just bought or not bought but she had just gotten back from you know the whole deal with the girl falling to her death and whatnot so shit hit the fan and 1834 when a fire broke out at the LaLaurie residence on Royal Street and it started in the kitchen. Oh, no. When the police and the fire marshal got there, they found the cooked, a 70-year-old woman chained to the stove by her ankle. She later said that she set fire as a suicide attempt because she feared being punished. She wow. said that slaves were taken into the uppermost rooms and never came back. Uh-oh. So this woman was like, fuck you. It's like, I'm about to cause some shit up in here. <laughs> um, things have gotten so bad where she was just like, I'm just going to catch everything on fire. And then hopefully, you know, things will get better. Yeah. Which, in the end, it kind of did. Okay. As far as, um, you know, what happened afterwards. So, the fire happened. Mm-hmm. The, she, she told about the slaves being kept in the upper rooms. And as reported by the New Orleans Bee in 1834, um, the bystanders that re, uh, responded to the fire attempted to enter the slaves' court quarters to ensure that everyone had been evacuated, but they were refused the keys by the LaLauri's. And then um, like the mob outside like got pissed off, so they broke down the doors to the slave quarters and found seven slaves more or less horribly mutilated, suspended by their necks, with their limbs apparently stretched and torn from one extremity to the other, who claimed to have been imprisoned there for some months. So... She got her slaves back. She's probably pissed off. Yeah. Um, because of all the uproar and everybody getting in her business and stuff. Um, with what she was doing in the upper rooms. Uh, a judge came down and went throughout the premise. And um, he... Bah, 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 among other things, found slaves wearing the iron collar and an old woman who had received a very deep wound to her head who was too weak to walk. Um, so, like, you know, a judge and law enforcement starts coming down, and so he starts questioning Madame Laurie's husband, the physician, about the slaves, and was told in an insolent manner that some people had better stay at home rather than come to others' houses to di- dictate laws and then meddle with other people's business. <laughs> So basically, he was saying, like, you know, cousin's a mayor, uncle's mm-hmm. a governor. I can do whatever the fuck I want. Mm-hmm. Um, 
<laughs> after the fire, um, the slaves were. Um, uh, let me see. Oh, another version of the story circulated in 1836, two years after the fire, that the slaves were emaciated and they show signs of being flayed with the whip and were bound in restrictive postures and wore spiked iron collars with their heads in different positions. So, you know, the fire happened, it exposed a lot, and this is where the rumors really start to fly. So I'm going to tell you a couple of the rumors that may or may not be true. Of course, this is all kind of folklore. Who really knows? Obviously, the Lalories were pieces of shit. Yeah. And they treated their slaves horribly. It's funny. Can, like, I feel like the, the least the least believable part of this so far is that a mob broke down the doors. Because I'm like, that seems very unlike the Old South to be like, I really care about what's happening to these slave slaves, people. Right? But like, I guess it could have just been like, we're going to break down the doors because something interesting is happening. I, and I think you that know? may have been more of what this was than anything else. Um, and I'll tell you why in a second. So so those that responded to the fires supposedly had found male slaves start naked, chained to the walls with their eyes gouged out, Ugh. their fingernails pulled off by their roots. Mm. Others had joints oh skinned and, fest- and festering with great holes in their buttocks where the flesh had been sliced away, their ears hanging by shreds, their lips sewn together, oh my intestines God. were pulled out and knotted around naked waist. And they also had holes in their skulls where a rough stick had been inserted into to stir their brains. Ew. Then other discoveries had been known um, that, hold on, discovery of the abused slaves became widely known. A mob of local citizens attacked the LaLaurie residence and demolished and destroyed everything upon which they could lay their hands. A sheriff and his officers were called to disperse the crowd, but at the time the mob left, Royal Street property had sustained major damage and scarcely anything remained in the walls. The slaves were taken to a local jail where they were made available for public viewing. So here comes the thing that you were talking about. So the New Orleans Bee reported that um, 4,000 people attended the viewing of the slaves to convince themselves of the suffering. So it really Uh, was the morbid curiosity of things happening more so than genuine care for the slaves. Um, It was more like sideshow. It was sideshow entertainment to them. Um, But 4,000 people, you know, to view the slaves that came out of her property. Whose idea was that? I'm going to put these guys on display. (laughs) Everybody. I mean, what? (laughs) I I don't know. I I really don't know. I know. It, It is all, all of it is horrible. So the Pittsford, the pick, the Pittsfield Sun cited that the New Orleans advertiser, citing the New Orleans advertiser. So it's like everybody's, this is such a rumor mill because it's like one paper citing another paper who possibly had said um, that after the evacuation of the LaLaurie slave quarters um, claimed that two of the slaves found in the LaLaurie mansion had died since their rescue. we understand that a digging in the yard, bodies had been like interred and condemned, and a condemned well in the ground of the mansion had been uncovered, and particularly that of a child was found in the well. Mm. So like the fire happened, the mo- the mass mob like threw a fit. Like after the fire, they went in and basically just destroyed and tore everything out. The cops went in, the judge went in, they all found, um, you know 
well, the mob went in just to tear shit up, basically. Mm-hmm. And then supposedly one place that I read that um, when the cops went in right after the fire, they heard scratching and they thought it was just rats. Oh, but no. later they came back. And when the mob came in, they started tearing up floorboards. And there was actually slaves who were alive after the fire in the floorboards, but had since died because they hadn't been discovered. Oh, no. So, again, all speculation, rumor, and whatnot. So, after all of this... um, you know, they dug up the grounds. They found a lot of skeletons. They found skeletons of a young child in the well. The Lalories obviously fled New Orleans during the mob violence um, and went to Mobile. And then from Mobile, they went to Paris and basically lived in France for the remainder of their lives. At least she did. I don't know what happened to him. Um French paper said that Marie Delphine McCarthy LaLaurie, I guess, died December 7th, 1849 at the age of 62. And a rumor has it that she was she died while boar hunting. Like there was a boar hunting accident. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. That just accident. seems kind of weird, right? So, so over the many different ways decades, you could die in boar hunting accident. You know, yeah. after they pretty much, you know, the mobs stripped the house, everything but the foundation, and then they sold it and and refurbished it. In the following decades, it was used as a public high school, a conservatory, a music, an apartment building, a refuge for young delinquents, a bar, a furniture store, and a luxury apartment building. And also, in April of 2007, actor Nicolas Cage bought the LaLaurie house for a sum of $3.4 million. He is so weird. Yes. He's all about that shit, too. Doesn't he own some of, uh, some of like, the voodoo priestesses stuff, too? I would the- buy it. <laughs> if I had the Marie money. Lived the Marie Laveau, yes. Marie Laveau. Yes. Okay. Have you seen these? House? You probably have, haven't you, Courtney? Well, if yeah. you look at the picture, the house looks like pretty much every, every other one. Every other one. It has the ornate wrought iron. Mm-hmm. It's three stories. It looks like something that Brad Pitt bought. And, you know, <laughs> Instead, they were something buying Nicholas property and stuff and hanging out. <laughs> so it, it's got, you know, it's totally that New Orleans. You would just walk on past it. There's nothing really special about it. Of course, there's nothing that survived really as the far as interior family, yeah. and exterior design from the original since the fire and the gutting by the mob. So, um, so obviously, Kathy Bates portrayed the fictionalized <laughs> Daphina LaLaurie in the 2013 third season of and third season and the eighth season of the American anthology horror television series oh my god that was a lot of words just to read yes it was um american, american horror, horror story. story yes kathy bates and is I actually i did watch that episode so i do remember <laughs> like they totally went with obviously the more um grotesque uh folklore mm-hmm. mythology of the place with like the sewn mouths and the intestines and the you know hang the hooks and yeah whatnot. oh my god yeah i i actually don't watch a lot of american horror story but i saw that one too yeah yeah that's, that was the one i saw yeah same thing um so again looking up so after all of this happened i was thinking well is this place haunted is of there any course, haunting surely. things right so soon after the fire the house was converted into the apartment complex and all of that and in the compartment complex a tenant was actually murdered mm. um 
And there's been like unusual, um, there was an unusual nature of his death that suggested ties to the paranormal activity. I don't know what the fuck that means. Mm -hmm. Even spookier, in the mid-19th century, the LaLaurie Mansion uh, functioned as an all-girls school where students often experienced random physical assaults. Throughout the years, neighbors have reported the mansion's windows opening and closing by themselves and the front door opening by itself. I was going to say, like, random physical assaults in a girls' school might not be ghosts. Yes, (laughs) this is true. We are in New Orleans. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) But it was the ghost. Um, So um, today, the LaLaurie Mansion is stately and is as spooky and remains an iconic New Orleans landmark. Some people walk by and they swear they see the face of Nicolas Cage staring out. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So that is my very long, elaborate story about Delphine Delphine LaLaurie and her homely ass self. (laughs) So from the book, this was, yeah, thank you. Beats. Beats. Um, I was reading, I started reading this through the book by that tour guide that did the Savannah tour guides, and then he went on to do the, of course, I don't have his name in front of me. Again, (laughs) this will be in the show notes. Um, and it was, you know, very interesting because I remember seeing, you know, Kathy Bates playing this mm-hmm. lady and whatnot. And he's good. And, and again, I'll put the book in the show notes. He's good because he'll tell you, like, the folklore part, like all the intestines pulled out and mm. the people being sewn together to look like crabs, you know, kind of weird uh-huh. things. Um, what is it in American Horror Story? They put a bull's head on someone, don't they? Doesn't she sew a bull's head on a man? It, well, it would fit along with a lot of what the mm-hmm. folklore kind of went with this. But he's good about talking about like the rumor mill and the folklore that went around and then presenting like the actual kind of facts of what like was reported in the paper mm-hmm. and what was like statements given by the police and um, people supposedly of like reputation to not like go in and exaggerate like mm-hmm. how horrific things were so we know at the very least she was a horrible person to her slaves she probably killed many um if not just tortured um you know it just sounded like she was a bitch it sounded like she was just a just hard just bitch um, the raging bitch of new orleans right um so the other stuff Again, it totally removed her husband, who was a physician, out of this. And with some of the surgical stuff that was done to them, I'm kind of wondering, like, really how much was her and how much was him? Like, how much was he was removed from all of this? Obviously, Mm -hmm. she was the one who was very much like, you know, you do as I say, I own you or I'll beat you kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Um so, but how much of like the upper story findings was her compared to him? Mm-hmm. We will never know. I wonder about like descendants and stuff like that. Like, wouldn't you change your name at this point if your last name was ever LaLaurie? Wouldn't you? Well, you know, if you live in France, it's probably, you know. Maybe it's more common or something. I don't know. Right. I have to pee. Okay. Just, you know. Yes. Let's take a break. That was me talking a really long time. <laughs> we'll be back after this break. <laughs> do, do, do. I'm so glad I get to sit back now. You get to sit back and now drink and, and, and enjoy the horrible story. Oh, horrible, amazing Have a drink. Story. Horrible, true. The, the true ones are the worst. Mm, that is the truth. Um, okay, so. All right. 
Sell me, because I have no fucking idea who you're doing. <laughs> Neither did I, because I had never heard of this before. Um, I'm going to tell the story of the upstairs lounge fire. And my my biggest um, resource for this was this book called Tinderbox. That is by Robert Fiesler. Um, this was 1973, New Orleans. And um, that's where I was born. Oh, I'm okay. Just Special. That out there. Yeah. Excuse me. Brap. Um, <laughs> 1973, New Orleans. It was in, in 1973, New Orleans was considered the gay capital of the South. I did not know that. Neither did I. Courtney's like, yep, yep, yep. Um, <laughs> and it's funny because when I think of New Orleans, like I think of Mardi Gras. I think of flamboyance and, you know, drag queens and bright right. colors Why and dancing right? and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And plus, in 73, Stonewall had just happened not that many years before. Right. And so, you know, there's, there's a movement, right. you know, afoot in the United States. But New Orleans may have been the gay capital of the South, but as the author of this and one of the other main books on this this story um, said in a podcast I was listening to, gay populist does not mean gay friendly. That, there were seventeen so there were seventy five thousand gays in New Orleans in seventy three. Wow. Well you were, know what? I'm sorry to interrupt. No go. But I mean obviously I think that like San Francisco, where a lot of the gay community would like travel to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, they were probably there all along. I don't think that it was like maybe a Mecca. Mm-hmm. I think it was just maybe just part of the population, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, as it exploded. Anyway, I don't know what. Okay, continue. <laughs> <laughs> a lot well, of hurricanes. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the rest of the statistic, though. Oh, okay. 75,000 gays in New Orleans in, in 73, in 1973. 1,000 out gays. Right. 1,000 out gays out of 75,000. Well, and what is that ratio? I mean, is that pretty much... I'd be I'd be curious to see what that ratio is during that time to ratio in other cities. I believe, like, in... Uh, as far as like population, there was more outness on the coasts. So you know, right. Stonewall. So, I mean, we we are talking like only a couple of years out of Stonewall, right? And Stonewall was a big deal because you even in New York City you can't be out, right. you know. And but I mean, at that point, people were big were you know this is like a drag queen punching a fucking cop in the face in Stonewall, right? And this is a big deal because you're supposed to back into the wall. Like, you're not supposed to stand up. You're supposed to accept that you're a second-class citizen. And they didn't. Right. So it had started to change. And that was, like, that was, like, the culmination of, like, a lot of fire in the bellies of people. Right. And, and, you know, of course, like, on the other coast, too, you know, in Los Angeles, there was a lot more movement, too. But the the first gay pride parade in Los Angeles didn't happen until the early 70s, either. Right. Just a couple of years before this. Well, maybe not so much with the Spanish. I'm, I'm thinking, like, very early <clears throat> settlements of, oh, like, New Orleans. I'm thinking, like, with the French. The French, to me, always seemed, like, more cultured and more accepting of Liberty. sexuality. Yeah. You know, and so it seems to me like, yes, New Orleans French population, that that would be something that would be more accepted. 
maybe not so much, you know, mm-hmm. beating the shit out of mm-hmm. as, you know, later years. But not, I don't know. I mean, yeah, because, I you know, the, the context of this story is it's dangerous to be gay in New Orleans in 1973. Yes, absolutely. It's illegal to be gay in New Orleans in 1973. Um, as in yes. a lot of other places in the United States and especially in the South, police would regularly raid gay bars. If they had any other infraction at all, they would go in and just beat the shit out of everybody inside. You know, right. God knows what's going to happen to you if you go into the slammer for the night you know and who's going to do what to you and police would do stings and like you know bait gay guys by saying hey come give me a blowjob take the blowjob and then beat the shit out of them and arrest them Mm -hmm. you know i mean like that kind of stuff was happening constantly in new orleans at that time frat boys had this ritual in new orleans in 1973 and a long time before of rolling a queer which was going into a bar, baiting a guy into coming into the alley with you and then beating the crap out of him and robbing him. Mm. And it was a it was a frat hazing ritual. Oh, shit. So, I mean, this is, you know, newspapers called gay men its and deviants. You know, they wouldn't even give them gender. You know, you're an it. Um, you'd lose your job. Or worse yet, a, a deviant or a pervert. Or a pervert, yeah. Right. You'd lose your job. You'd lose your home. You could get evicted from your house. Um like I said, you get arrested, you get charged. Um, and then, so there's like the social side, which is like, this is the part that really fascinates, it fascinates me about the South, like across the board. Cause like I said, I grew up outside of DC and, um, you know, so technically it's this, I mean, I'm, I'm in Virginia. Technically I count as a South court. And he's like, uh, uh-uh, no, uh, uh-uh, no, 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 you're not, you're not deep. South. I'm not, not dirty. South. I mean, I don't think no, nobody that I've met in the South who is actually Southern would say that I'm Southern, Right. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it's funny cause where I grew up, um, hypocrisy was our thing. Yeah. Like I grew up inside the beltway. I was like, I grew up with politicians, mm-hmm. you know I mean? We're hypocrites up there. Oh, <laughs> right. This is what we do. We preach one thing mm-hmm. and then we turn around when the door is closed and do something different. I, 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 I know hypocrites. Right. I understand that, but I didn't get the South because what the South does is not hypocrisy. It's like, it's like a two-facedness that was pretty common down there at this time. And you see it everywhere still now. But there's something really, really, really like uniquely Southern about the way that stuff like this is dealt with. Because and it's like in all all praise and honor to Julia Sugarbaker. Um, <laughs> like <laughs> New Orleans. I think New Orleans is proud of its eccentricities, right? Oh, absolutely. But it don't want to bring them to Sunday dinner. Right. I mean, you know, we say that we want to set them up in the living room, but that's your crazies. That's not your gays. Right. And so, like, you'd lose your friends and family. And it's funny because this this guy who wrote this book, he uses this term called Janus face. And I guess that's some... Janus? Janus face, like J-A-N-U-S. And I had to look it up. It's like a Greek god. Uh-huh. And I didn't look up what the Greek god is god of or anything like that. Courtney? I think it's another way of saying two-faced. She's like, she's the one with the I'm phone. She's it. like, I'm on it. I'm your research like person. <laughs> but um, it's like we don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. This right. is this is the Southern rule. It, like it's everyone, the polite society. It's the polite society. We mm-hmm. are in genteel, elegant society. We don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. In New Orleans, it's we don't want to get in the way of the party. Right. But one way or another, you know, we will say all day long at church that being gay or being anything, one thing or another is wrong. You know, cheating on somebody is wrong. Being gay is wrong. Doing this or that. Right. Even Only is on wrong. Sundays, though. Right. You'll say it. But if, like, if you leave and you actually say it again, you're the one who's in the way of society. Right. It's like there's 
you can be gay all day, but if you talk about it, mm-hmm. that's when you're wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think like that was something that was, that it was like is, eccentric silence uncles. is the building block of society at yeah. this point. Silence is the building block of society. You don't say anything. And so um, it was also a class like so that's why there was 1000 out gay men and 75,000 gay people. Because they're all upper class. Part of it is because most of them, well, no, not most of them. Okay. Probably most of them are blue collar. A lot of them are upper class. The upper class guys had their way of doing things. Right. And that is your eccentric uncle. Right. You know, this is, you know, we all respect this guy is a little bit different. We're not going to ask too many questions. Mm-hmm. Lots of rich guys had their little man that they kept in a mm-hmm. special apartment in the quarter. Right. And everybody kind of knew that that happened. But, you know, as long as it doesn't get in your way. Right. And, and you know, there's got something, money and they're still paying you. I was going to say, there's something very cool and live and let live about that. Except that, like, if anybody ever, you know, says anything about it, he's still going to get arrested. You know, if somebody right. makes a deal of it, he's still going to get arrested. He's still going to get beaten. He's still right. going to lose his job and his family. Um, so it's not really live or let live. It's just kind of let me be, right. I think, is the attitude that goes along with this. And so um, while the upper class guys can get away with it because they've got family and money, mm-hmm. blue collar guys, they, they're in a completely different category. Oh, no, no, and right. there were a ton of blue collar guys. And there was this quote, and I couldn't say this any, any better than this guy said. Um, there was a journalist, Bill Rushton. And this was when the advocate was like brand, it was like a rag. It was brand new. Now the advocate is like a huge recognized national LGBTQ publication. But he wrote for the advocate. Let's see. In the mid quarter gay bars on Bourbon Street and the surrounding gay restaurants, it's the beautiful people gays with their bow ties and Bloody Marys and maybe brunch squeezed in between. On Rampart Street, it's countless refugees from small southern towns, middle aged hairdressers and decorators who can't make it here and can't go home. Repasting off buffet spreads like you'll only find elsewhere on Southern Baptist picnics. On Iberville, which is where the upstairs lounge bar was, was mm-hmm. it's the hustlers and their johns staggering in from the night before, carousing at only a slightly subdued key, except for at the upstairs. So this like this blue collar like population of of gay men in New Orleans who had to leave their own hometowns because they had right. to, and then were having a hard time like making a living even in New Orleans, and we're having to kind of live this closeted lifestyle. And a lot of them chose to live this closeted lifestyle because it's a lot less trouble for them, really. Oh, right. I mean, as long don't as you know how to work the system. Up, yeah. Right? So these were the guys that frequented the upstairs lounge. So in, in the French Quarter on Iberville Street, close to Charter, um, <clears throat> is right around the corner from the Hotel Monteleone. So if you ever go into oh, New Orleans, you, everybody goes to Monteleone, right? That's going to be another story for another yeah, day. <laughs> because it's haunted. Yes. Um, so it's right around the corner from Monteleone. It's um, right around the corner from the Marriott. These are rich people hotels. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it is. A lot of the, I mean, you'll find like this really just massive, like awesome rich people hotel. And then you'll find a dive. You know, it's like everything's right, like pounded right on top of each other. That's just the way it is. But if you wanted to go to the upstairs, there was there was a canopy right outstairs, and the, it said upstairs lounge under the canopy, but it was basically hidden from view, and that was on purpose. There was a bar on the downstairs floor, on the main street floor, and I think it's I think you pronounce it the Jiminy Bar, and it's still there. 
second floor was the upstairs lounge. And so, you know, this, this sign points people up to this very, very like narrow staircase. You practically have to pull your elbows in to get up the staircase. And there's like wires and pipes and everything running along the side. And it's got like indoor outdoor carpet covering the stairs. And you go upstairs around this rickety staircase and there's a big, um, there are a couple doors you go through and big, um, you know, metal door. You pull open and you're in the upstairs lounge. It's three rooms. It's like um, the main bar room, which has like a grand piano in the corner. And then you go and there's a little tiny room that has a dance floor in it. And then you go a little further and there's this room where everybody would do like what what they called them Nelly dramas. And they would they would do like uh, charity reviews and things like that on Sundays. They would do a drag show every now and again. This was the first drag, the first gay bar that ever got a, a dancing license in New oh, Orleans. Wow. Um, so. Uh, the place has got like red is the theme of the upstairs bar in, in, in it was only been open for like three years at this point mm-hmm. it's got like a red flecked bar all red wallpaper there's red fabric hanging from the ceiling and the indoor outdoor carpet inside too is red like petroleum based indoor outdoor carpet did you say petroleum based? I know. <laughs> foreshadowing. Um, but uh, so what makes this place different, though, is so I'm saying these. this is, you know, we're not um, we're not like upscale dudes here. Right. So this is like Average usually middle age. Yeah, yeah. Middle age, a welder, a, you know, a, a foreman, you know, middle aged mm-hmm. guys who um, don't want to have to deal with all the fucking around that happens at all these other gay bars. Right. So, like, a lot of the bars down in that area are for hustlers and for, like, folks who don't want to be found out, like, picking up a side piece of meat. Right. And um, there were special rules at the upstairs lounge. This was not, what did they say? It was, there was no tea room sex allowed Mm -hmm. at the upstairs. They said, you don't fuck around in the bathroom. There's no soliciting allowed here. We don't do drugs. We don't do sloppy drunks. Ah. This is cheers. Right. You know, this is like a, a place a very for folks to hang out. Where, yeah. Yeah, to hang where you out. can still dance and people can still couple off and go, but it's not but like... it's not there. It's right. not... This is not like a shit bar, you right. know? And they tried to keep it friends and friends of friends because you can go to a lot of places and get blackmailed. So, you know, they're trying to make sure that, you know, they keep it safe mm-hmm. and friendly, but they do welcome people that they don't know. It's just they do prefer that you, you know, you kind of have to have a reference. Right. And um, the bar had never been raided because they didn't fuck around with these rules. Mm-hmm. They were really serious about it. They kept the police away because they didn't have this other reason for them to come in and check right. out what's going on. So it's discreet, in a word. Right. And they also like allowed this church called the Metropolitan Christian Church to come and do services there on Sundays. And like at, at, by 73, they had found a separate building, but they'd been holding services in this bar for a while. And, um, you know, this is the first gay-friendly Christian fellowship in the United States. It was wow. a Metropolitan Community Church. Um, it was founded in like Los Angeles in '68, and um, by by 19 by the year before this happened, there were 24 congregations across the country. So it was a pretty big church at this point. But um, you know, they didn't they weren't loud or out there or anything. They were like maybe. 20 some people I guess and generally at worship and stuff but they would always go up to the upstairs lounge after worship and um, you know just like hang and fellowship and drink and you know do fun stuff create a community so um, 
a whole lot of the people that were at the bar on June 24th in 1973 were members of the MCC congregation because they'd finished service and then they had, including the bill, the pastor's name was Bill Larson. And he would go up there and um, with his deacons and his other people and they would, uh, there's, uh, what is it? The Sunday beer bust. They would have every Sunday, they would have unlimited beer for a dollar with 50 cent mug uh, return like a refundable mug fee of right. 50 cents. So you would go up there and just basically drink for two and a half hours and like everybody having a good time, right? So um, it's Bill Larson, his deacons, Courtney Craighead, Mitch Mitchell, his partner Horace. They had a commitment ceremony up in the bar. Um, they traded rings, you know, this highly illegal, um, but they did it very quietly up in the upstairs lounge years before. Um, Buddy Rasmussen was the manager of the bar at this point, and he was the bartender, and his lover, Adam Fontenot, was there. Stephen Duplantis was in town for a fling with a couple of friends. He was actually an airman from Texas who left um, his airbase periodically on weekends to go back to New Orleans and, like, spend time with his friends and have a couple flings and then go back. Of course, nobody knows what he's doing. Um, So this, this afternoon, this Sunday afternoon, they're doing the beer bust, and this hustler comes in. His name is Roger, um, Roger Dale Nunez. So what are we calling the hustler here? Is this somebody that's like... He's looking a... for a John. Okay. All right. Um, he's uh, he's French Cajun. He's been looking around for somebody to pick him up all afternoon. He's like drunk as shit already by now. By the time he gets to the upstairs and he's pissed off because somebody just clipped his John out from under him and took him home. And mm-hmm. so he just lost a whole bunch of money. Okay. And so he's upstairs at the bar and he's just like gonna get... He wants to pick somebody else up. It's against the rules. And, um, you know, he kind of gets weird looks from everybody. He ends up going into the bathroom and like peeping on people and soliciting people from the bathroom. And everybody's kind of pissed, you know, because right. he's is, being a jackass. Yeah, he's like, this is not what we do here. Right. You know, it's like, we're not, we're not into we're not this. Lower and he's class. not, yeah, well, yeah. And he's, he's not taking no for an answer. He's like, mm-hmm. we're, this is not he's what drunk, we're into. And so I'm sure he's <laughs> exactly. very, exactly. Yes. And so he's, he's pissing people off. And finally, this, um, this war veteran who is a regular at the upstairs, Michael Scarborough, he tells Buddy, the bartender, who forcibly removes Roger from the bathroom. Roger realizes who rats him out. He realizes this dude, this giant dude over at the piano is the guy that told management that he was peeping on people in the bathroom. And so he walks up and starts just hurling insults at him. And like I said, Michael's a war veteran. Right. <laughs> He's not going to take this shit from this little dude. Yeah. So he just clocks him, mm. knocks him on the floor and, um, they kick him out of the bar. A couple people pick him up, drag him down. They, they're like, listen, dude, go sober up. We're, this is not what we're into. And so he takes off. And before he leaves, when they've got him by the elbows, two different people in the bar hear him say, I'm going to burn this place to the ground. Shit. And um, so shortly this, after that. I'm sorry. Is this guy, is he like physically small? Like is he is he's, he's a fairly small guy. It's funny because later they do say like he completely fit the profile of the arson at this time. Mm-hmm. He's like a mid 20s, um, like dark haired white male who has um, divorced parents, which mm. is basically the profile For, apparently of an arson. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so there we, wow. now we know that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so they uh, later when they do the investigations, they talk to this clerk at the Walgreens, which is right on around the corner, which if you ever want to go to this location, Walgreens is still right where it always was. I had no Same idea Walgreens was around in Neither 73, did I. right? So um, this Walgreens is there. She uh, 
tells them, yes, a drunk white male in his mid-20s with dark hair did come in and buy a seven-ounce can of Ronsonol lighter fluid from mm. me, and he was inebriated. And um, so basically... Uh, Roger buys this can of lighter fluid. He goes down, he gets to the bottom of the staircase and he empties the lighter fluid on the staircase, throws the can down, lights it on fire. And it's a long staircase. So it's not necessarily like this had to be like a horrible, tragic story. Oh, good. But that it was, I was, was a little scared. A horrible, tragic story. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I was like, ooh, everybody's just like, that was your... out. <laughs> nope, sorry. It has to be. I ruined it. <laughs> it's awful. Take oh, another no. drink. This is really bad. The bad part's coming. I'm sorry. Um, okay, so this is indoor, outdoor petroleum based carpet. And it's in a building that has not been inspected in more than two years oh, by the shit. city. And probably wouldn't have passed, passed inspection before that either, or shouldn't yeah. have. So it's this rickety wooden staircase, wood panels on both sides. You know, mm. I mean, this fire just takes off in yeah. the bottom of the staircase. And it's just billowing, goes up. Odd thing is, it's very quiet and it's very fast because it's lighter fluid. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> it travels most of the way up the staircase, but there's a landing. And so, and it's enclosed. So at one point, it kind of looks like the fire is going to go out. Right. Because it's... it's um, it's uh, suffocated. There's no air up right. there in this enclosed part. And so the people downstairs in the Jiminy Bar don't actually even know this is happening. Oh, wow. And um, the thing is, there's a buzzer to the street. And um, they'd never used it at the upstairs. Like, Buddy never used the buzzer unless somebody had to get a cab called or unless he had, like, an off hours. So uh, what do we call a buzzer? Like, it's, um, like, if you're in, a, in an upper-level apartment and oh, somebody has like, to buzz you from the street to okay. get the door open. Right. So um, the buzzer starts going off, like, crazy in the bar and it's uncertain at this point whether roger stuck around to ring the buzzer Uh, or whether the um electrics were fried along the side of the hallway um but the buzzer's just going like nuts and so he tells his friend luther boggs just go check the damn door like i don't know why somebody's ringing the buzzer go go check the door so it's this giant metal door at the top of the stairs Fire's almost about to go out. Luther walks up to the door, turns the knob, pulls it open, and releases a wind tunnel of oxygen into the staircase and creates... Anybody ever seen the movie Backdraft? This is how I learned about this. Donald Sutherland and that whatever Baldwin dude who, like, fucked the girl on top of the fire (laughs) engine. (laughs) But, like, that's what happened, basically. Luther Boggs opens a door... um, Air just ignites this, and a fireball shoots 40 feet straight into the Holy bar. Holy shit. There, I don't know how many people... Actually, it's, I'm sure it's in the book somewhere. I don't know how many people were in the bar at the time. But um, the the carpeting immediately ignites. Right. Fabric on the fe- ceiling immediately ignites. There are poison gases from what was in the hallway outside in the staircase that have already started to cause major problems oh, and combust themselves. God. And so basically it turned into an inferno like that. Right. Um, There were, um, the fire was so hot and so fast that there were like 10 foot plumes of flame that were shooting straight up to the ceiling from the floor. And um, I hope, I just, in in situations like that, you just hope that 
people just passed out from smoke inulation, yeah. smoke inulation, instead of burn. Because fire is like the worst way to go. I know. And I, I mean, the people, I hate to say it, the people that passed quickly were definitely the lucky ones. There were a lot of people that passed within 30 to 60 seconds because that was when the most heat and the most flame was hitting. Wow. Um, uh, Adam Fontenot um, was sitting on a bar stool and was you know everybody's drunk it's the end of beer bust right everybody's trash so like this is Nobody happening probably knows what the fuck's going nobody on nobody knows what's like they, they're a bunch of veterans in the bar right. at this point but you know and they know like situational awareness they should be able to click but they're drunk right and so you and, know and if you're sitting around enjoying yourselves just like we are right now and you're just not something ready. happened you're not ready oh, you're no. just like what the fuck is that I know he's like pointing at the probably patrolling base right I know yeah I shouldn't make jokes about the <laughs> doll lighting fire scene. Right. Um, <laughs> fire starter over there sitting next to you. Exactly. I know. She's terrifying, this little doll. But, um, yeah, so uh, this this fireball shoots in. Um, Buddy is the one. Buddy is the bartender. So he may be less drunk than everybody else. Right. And he, if I remember right, was also a veteran. And, excuse me, very young. His, his lover, Adam, is sitting on a bar stool. And he's one of the ones that goes fast, apparently. Uh-huh. Because... I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of Pompeii. Um, oh, yeah. With, like, yes. High heat bodies. You're frozen in place. You're done. Right. And that's what happened to Adam Fontenot. Because when the firemen finally were able to get up there, he was sitting on the bar stool that's in the exact same up. position that, that he is had so been. Horrible. Yeah. And, and Buddy luckily didn't realize that that was the situation. He, um, but he jumped over the bar and started grabbing people by like the elbow and the shoulder and hauling people up out of there like Ugh. Mm-hmm. and he's like I, follow me we have to get out of here there's a string of like 30 people that follows buddy through this archway because they're going closer to the fire to follow him oh. nobody would have known to do this right they're going into this archway around to the second room he takes them into the third room because the th- second room is is getting to where it's on fire already too right and he takes them into the third room where this theater is and f- there's a non-exit lit sign. I mean, there is. It's an exit to the right. to the roof, and he has the keys to it. And so he gets a whole bunch of people through because immediately they couldn't see shit in there. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, immediately when this fire starts, it's so smoky in there. Nobody knows what's going. So they're just following, like, right. by hope, by right. blind hope that he's actually taking them someplace safe. And he um, he's fiddling with the keys. He opens the door and he gets a bunch of people out onto the roof. Um, he turns around and it looks like there's probably no reason to go back in. Right. Um, there were 17 people that, I hate this part, there were 17 people that thought that the best thing to do is to get as far away from the source of the fire as possible. Mm. And so they huddled together in the corner by the bar, mm. in the far corner opposite the front door, and they had no way to get out. Oh, there were two people that were standing right by the staircase who looked around and were like... It's either die up here or die running. So they got out into the staircase and ran straight through the flames down to the street. Did they survive? Both of them lived at least that far. Mm. Um, I think one of them may have passed away in the hospital afterwards Mm. because their lungs were blackened. Right. I mean, like you breathe in. Yeah. I mean, they were being cooked. Oh, my God. Um, And so, you know, light bulbs were shattering all Mm -hmm. around because of the heat. Um, These 17 people stuck at the bar realized that the windows, because they're trying to make this safety place, you know, they're Mm -hmm. on a second floor bar and they don't want any breed people to fall out. So they've got wrought iron bars vertical all the way along all of the windows on that side of the bar. 
So they throw chairs and they break the windows, but they can't get out. Mm. And um, there were a couple people who were super skinny that could like, you know, make their way, squeeze through these bars Mm -hmm. and fall from the second story onto the street Um, and get out of the fire. At this point, the bars are wrought iron and they're they're a grill grate. So just trying to get through them is burning people. And... um, so it just, I think maybe three people made it through the windows and the rest of them tried to get through and got stuck. Mm. And um, the pastor of um, the church, the MCC church, Bill Larson, was on like the main fairway side of the bar and he was trying to protect somebody from a fireball that came back through. There was like a burst of oxygen from the roof and like flooded through and he threw himself on top of somebody else. And um, she uh, she didn't make it, but he realized- in, Oh, it was a she. Yeah, there were a couple women in the bar. Oh, okay. And um, friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he had this burst of adrenaline when this happened and tr- just reached and tried scratching at the at the, the wall and found in like a, a hidden window. He pulled part of the wall back and found an opening to the outside and pushed himself through and got one breath of fresh air and an air conditioning unit fell and trapped him there. Holy fuck. And the um, the breath of fresh air he got lit the flames behind him and Ugh. shot straight over him into the street. And so he was the second Pompeii-like figure and he was halfway out into the street. So the most iconic mm. picture you're ever going to find of this fire is of Bill Larson hanging out the window, burned to a crisp, looking alive. Oh my God, alive. there's pictures? Mm-hmm, yeah, oh, and I'll share them with shit. you. He's like, it's. you can see his whole the whole upper half of his body coming out the window and he looks like he's in action but he's gone by the way y'all marlea is totally like saying all these names like not reading anything like right (laughs) off the top of her head i am so utterly impressed that you can remember people's names like that i i truly bow to you it's this book man this book was a was great coverage of it and it's like it's important shit like i didn't want to like i didn't want to fuck this up these are like real people and um you know the sad thing is like so there's 17 people gone inside there's people out on the roof Courtney's looked up the picture she found it it's easy I mean it's oh my god these are horrific it's pretty bad um and you know meanwhile like that I mean so that's the response you get when you see these pictures there's a bar down the street that sets up a mobile bar outside on the sidewalk so that people who are coming by to gawk can drink while they look holy fuck as in New Orleans tradition, obviously, exactly of, like it's, the morbid curiosity. It's the morbid curiosity. It's the exact same thing. Oh, but fuck. you know, there are there are absolutely good Samaritans. I mean, the fire department. There were people that they interviewed from the fire department that were just torn to shreds over it because they're like, we were 18 feet from saving these guys, but we could not get up the damn staircase. The whole fire was out in 16 minutes. Oh, my God. 16 minutes. The whole thing was gone inside. Wow. And they got the outside fire controlled within 19 minutes. And they lost 32 people. Oh, my God. Um, well, okay. So I'm sure you're just going to get to this. 
but what the fuck happened to the little fucker <laughs> who started this <laughs> bullshit? Seriously, uh, I will tell you. Yeah, I was like, there. There is all the predictable stuff about like what ha- cops are saying. Oh, it was just a queer bar. You right. know, thieves hung out here. These are all the things that are happening outside it's God's the place. Judgment, there I'm were sure. people that were interviewed mm-hmm. saying, "God, this is." You know what? But to their credit, there were also people that were interviewed in the newspaper that that interrupted those people who were saying that and said, "That is awful of you to say." Mm-hmm. There were always people that did come up and say like that's you're being a horrible person like absolutely so there's always like the voice of good and stuff like this um so um because the police didn't really take it seriously um the investigation was questionable and Mm -hmm. um there was uh there was evidence that was lost that was later found. Um, it was it was discovered actually after Katrina when it wouldn't have mattered. I mean, everything had been compromised by then, but it was hiding in a locker at the police station since 1973. Hold on. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. Like, after Katrina, Katrina was when? That was like 2005? Mm. Oh my god. So they, they discovered after Katrina that it had been, you know, compromised, of course, because everything got flooded. Yeah. <laughs> yes, That's we are getting refills right now. I'm, I'm probably gonna, on our second I feel like I need to. I need to, like, chug this, because this is a sad story. Yeah, I hate oh, this I'm, story. like, over here almost crying. I know. I, I was actually trying to tell it to myself earlier and almost cried but um so uh there were cops that stole from the bar so you know when we're talking about like uh you know a reasonable investigation you know we're not going to have a happy ending on that um you know uh and before i before i get to what happened to him like just to say like the the situation the victims were in here um because again there's only 1000 outed gay men in um in new orleans at the time for legitimate reasons mm-hmm. there were a lot of people who left their entire life behind and went by other names once they got there so there were people who whose families couldn't be found because nobody knew who they were really or no actually people knew who they were really but nobody knew who they were when they were born right who they came from and um and so you know there was a lot of that there were these poor guys who survived had to turn around and go to work the next day because they couldn't tell anybody where they were they had to go to work and listen to people saying like there's barbecued queens on the menu at all the restaurants this weekend and not say anything because if they said anything they get fired they just lost all their friends there were people who had to go in and id their friends in the morgue and not like buy what was in the tiny envelope because that was all they could really you know get out of it um and uh you know and then there's there's steven the guy who worked steven duplant who um was an airman in texas who had to drive home that night and not tell anybody that you know he had been there because he would be dishonorably discharged and you know probably worse um for being there so you know investigating was difficult too because nobody wanted to admit that they knew anything nobody wanted to admit that they knew anybody there you know there were remains that actually went unclaimed by families even after they knew that it was their family's remains um and so yeah there was a lot of there was a lot of shit there were only 29 people out of 39 they were able to id which was actually really impressive because those 17 people at the corner who couldn't get out right. they were fused together 
Like mm. it took them days to get all that unwound. So, I mean, it's impressive actually that they got 29 people ID'd. Right. Um, but there were a lot of people who ended up in public graves, you know, committed partners had no rights right. to the ashes, you know, anything. Right. Um, and, you know, local news outlets didn't really know what to do. And they actually outed a lot of people oh, wow. because, you know, these guys are in shock and there are people just swarming immediately while the fire's still going on and saying like, who are you? So they just out with their actual oh, right. brave because, name. Because, yeah, you're shocked. You're in shock yeah. when you come and out so, of there. Yeah, so people whose families didn't know, whose parents didn't know, you know, called them and said, what's all this I hear? It's not like, are you safe? Right. It's what Thank this God I hear about you, you being in a gay bar. horrendous event. Yeah. It didn't affect the bar downstairs? The bar downstairs, all, they actually didn't know it happened until they started hearing, I hate this, they started hearing pounding on the floor. Wow. It was people trying to break through the floor mm. to get out um, because it all went so fast. But when the smoke got, you know, everybody came out of the bar downstairs, apparently it didn't damage the bar very much downstairs. There was wow. a loft upstairs. And the sad thing is, Buddy, when he took all those people out onto the roof, he had to make the decision when he turned back around to shut the door Mm. on the first room. He had to shut the fire rated door that was in there and latch it. And like, I'm, you know, he disappeared for a while after that. And, you know, all he did was wonder, like, who did I lock in there? But he made the right decision. I mean, 30 people lived because of him. Right. Um, but, um, you know, there was no, at that time, like, the mayor of New Orleans was Moon Landrew, and he made no public statement of, you know, grief or mourning or anything like that. I mean, it's not All like right. people didn't acknowledge it happened. It was in the news and stuff, but, like, it wasn't sympathy a tragedy. Their sympathy was not there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, people were like, please just keep it low-key. And um, so as far as Nunez was concerned... Um, Investigators questioned him like on July 2nd, like a week later. And he he went into seizures and was admitted to the hospital at that time. Um, he had a broken jaw. He had a broken jaw because of, you know, his getting punched and knocked to the floor at the bar. Mm-hmm. And he hadn't gone to the hospital for it. So when they took him in for seizures, they did surgery on his broken jaw. And so, you know, the police suspected him, but they left him there without guard. And then the hospital called when he was supposed to be released. Like, they were supposed to call the police department when he was going to be released. And, um, excuse me, um... And they they called, but um, the police didn't come. And so they released him. You know, they had no... They, he wasn't charged with anything, so they just released him. Mm-hmm. And he disappeared. You know, mm-hmm. he went back to Abbeville, oddly. Abbeville, Louisiana, not, not Alabama, mm-hmm. um, with his mother. And... Um, live there. They never tried to locate him again. The police department never tried to locate him again. The final police report didn't even acknowledge that the fire was intentional. Um, and uh, the fire marshal investigators were actually the ones who made a little bit more headway with him. Mm-hmm. So they were more interested in figuring out because, you know, he's he's a threat to everybody. You know, the fire marshal recognizes this. Right. And they looked longer and they, they found out that he had admitted to several people after the fact that he had done this. Like he, he was talking about it to people. Mm-hmm. Um, he had multiple multiple brain surgeries though like the epilepsy was a real thing like he had a lot of mental health problems and he had serious like brain injuries oh wow so he had was a it, lot of this brain is surgeries before the, the the fire after oh after and um he eventually od'd on like a cocktail of pills uh, intentionally mm. in 1974 he od'd in november 1974 so, like a year later yeah so. and um the fire investigators the fire marshals presented a report in 1975 concluding that it was arson and concluding that it was him right um but he was gone right. and the victims weren't allowed to sue the city 
for um, failure to inspect. Right. Uh, so, you know, yeah. it seemed like nothing was going to happen. Like, this seemed like a very sad story. Right. But um, part of the good part about it was, like, there was this MCC church that they were a part of. They One of the guys who was at the upstairs lounge that night was actually visiting from a, a version of... Uh, location of that church in Atlanta and he ended up calling for help uh, along the church lines and he ended up getting Troy Perry who was the guy who started that church in um, in LA and um, a bunch of people who were activists gay activists came into town and decided to be the voice for these guys who had just gone through this tragedy it was weird because they weren't really well received across the board by anybody because these guys, you know, were still reeling from this event and Troy is trying to throw press conferences saying like, you guys need to respect and, you know, love your gay community and, you know, support them. And these guys are just like, please, can you just let me go to bed? Like, I just lost all my friends. I don't want to be an activist. Like I never wanted to be an activist. And this is the way things work here. Right. Like, yeah, that's very much kind of a Southern thing. Mm -hmm. So when people come in that are not Southern, and try to help even mm-hmm. if it's like even if it's the best of intention it is totally southern for people to go mm, you're an outsider yeah even if you're trying to help me still this is how things work and it's not you know and it can't and they're kind of looking at it like you just you know they wanted time for one thing but yeah it was very much like we're not about in your face shit here right. you know this like they hated the gay liberation front they were like you guys are rabble rousers we don't want that you know and right. troy even like got like gay business owners together and said like what can we do and the gay business owners were pissed off at him because they're like you know by throwing this like because he had thrown a press conference for mm-hmm. them basically or a meeting or it was a meeting with them well, it's a survival thing it's like you're gonna that's fucking what they said. get us killed that's what they said they were like we the fuck have up. A system. They were like, we do payoffs to the police. The police leave us alone. If you start making noise, we're fucked. Right. And he he really, I don't know that he ever really got that. But all the same now, if it wasn't for him, there was a St. Mark's Methodist Church, which I want the Methodists to hear this, please. Mm. St. <laughs> Mark's Methodist Church. It's pissed me off oh, the yeah. news this week. Yes. Because I was so... People are different. Things are different. In this case, though, this Methodist church down the street, like a week after the um, St. Mark's Methodist allowed them to have a memorial service, uh, like a week after. And there were lots of people there. Um, And a lot of the people in the community showed up and they didn't necessarily expect that. And um, so, you know, not only had this Methodist church opened its doors knowingly. Right. They had um, they. So the, what was it that an archbishop who, no, who's in charge of the Methodist church, whoever it was that was, um, like a high up in the Methodist right. church. Yeah, I don't think Methodists have archbishops. They don't. They yeah. totally don't. That's Episcopalians and right. Catholics. Um, Catholics. but anyway, there was, there was somebody like higher up in the, mm-hmm. in the hierarchy that was very, like, there was actively part of these morality groups that were anti-gay. And he even came and sat not to um, not to insult people at this memorial service, but to say, I want you to know that this preacher is not doing this without the support of our denomination. Right. He was like this guy who openly did not dig the gay lifestyle came and sat and said, like, this is what we do for people, right. which is laudable. I mean, right. it is amazing. And so like for people, yes, for people. And um, 
it was weird because like during the service, Troy, who is this guy from LA realizes that there are cameras and stuff set out on the street. And he's like, Oh crap. In this week he has learned like this gay community does not want cameras. We don't want to be outed. We don't want to be seen at this event. And so he finally realizes like, I, I get it. And he stands up and says, I'm sorry to interrupt. He's like, I'll let picture this. Okay, I'm going to let you finish. I'm going to let you finish. Mm-hmm. But like, I got to let everybody know there's cameras outside. And so these preachers, these Methodist preachers are helping to create like a contingency plan to get people out without having to go out the front door. Right. And it's really kind of cool. Yeah. Disturbing because yes. they have to do it, but kind of cool that everybody is working because together. they know it, it's it's a volatile situation. It's yeah. like the livelihoods of these people that they're dealing with. It's respectful, yeah, in this yeah. way, and it's it's so weird. It's like that line between like I'm always about activism and stuff, but like I get this, you know, you've got to respect people, right? And um, the reality of the situation. And this this lesbian who had come to the the thing just stood up in the middle of this negotiation. She's like, you know what? I walked in by the damn front door. I'm walking out by it. And everybody stood up and walked out the goddamn front door because they were just like, they're pissed that this whole thing has happened. And so even though like these guys from outside, like tried to make everything like big and showy and press conferency and change things that day, right? it actually helped like the event and even their presence helped to like galvanize the local community and say like, you know what? This sucks. Yeah. Like we can't have people doing this. We can't be losing this stuff in these people all the time. Right. And so they actually started standing up and small changes after that really did start happening. Right. Um, and, um, you know, people were able to come out, not just on Mardi Gras, (laughs) but like to recognize, like the city had to recognize, like, right. These people are here all the time. Like they're not just a show for you. Like one week of the year. Right. Absolutely. And now, like, LGBT rights are recognized by the city council in New Orleans. And, like, there are these, like, you know, sexual orientation, like, there are hate crimes law recently that covers sexual orientation. Um, New Orleans, um, I think, recognizes recognizes same-sex marriage as the city did, or at least gave, like, um, insurance rights to people who are married, same-sex marriage, domestic wow. partner benefits to city employees. And That's um, amazing. And there's like there's like a um, Southern Decadence event that that's like it's like an LGBTQ party, and it draws more than 180 thousand like partiers to New Orleans every year. It's like up there with Mardi Gras right. as one of the most popular events, and, and a really amazing. big thing for the economy too. Yes, absolutely. So anyway, I wanted to end like with a things are getting better. <laughs> right. Like things have improved. Things are better. And shitty stuff happens and raise a glass because yes, absolutely. It's yes. it's Ooh. getting better. Yes. We come a long way, baby. Absolutely. That's horrible my story. story. Yeah. It's awful. <laughs> sorry, horrible it was, sorry. That was I'm harrowing. like in tears almost. Yep, I, <laughs> I got so many emotions going on right now. <laughs> it's like I'm horrified. I'm so extremely sad, but I'm like galvanized to to like. You I know. know. <sighs> you know, people people suck, but people don't suck, man. Right. That's like that's the story. That's right. It, it is the story. People suck. People but a lot don't of people suck. don't. Yeah, absolutely. So, happy Mardi Gras, everybody. Happy Mardi Gras. And Woo! thanks for listening. And 10 episodes, man. We have, like, oh! talked, like, over 10 hours of yes! shit. <laughs> Woohoo! Who knew? Yeah.
10 episodes. Yes, thank you. Thanks for being with us, people. Absolutely. If you stuck with us so far, thank you so much. We are on Facebook at The Strange South Podcast and on Instagram at The Strange South Podcast. Same username. Mm -hmm. Please. um, We're starting to collect some stories from users. Yes. And I thought I'd be prepared to, like, say, go to here and submit your story. But I'm not prepared yet. But we want to do it soon. But we want to do it soon. So if we want to have your personal experiences, too, do want to do your personal experiences. So please contact us on Facebook or Instagram. If you don't want, like, anybody else knows, just, like, direct message us, mm-hmm. private message us somehow. Um, we are collecting those, and we'll be doing those soon, because I think we got a name for them. Didn't we do Listener Lore? Listener Lore! Yeah. I like Ooh, that. Yes. So we'll do that soon, and we've got some crazy shit coming up. <laughs> so have a great weekend. Enjoy it, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. And Creepalina the doll yes. has her mask on. Oh, 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 there's oh, plastic yes, on her. Somebody-